Hi, my name is Marlena Wasiski. I'm one of the third year residents at University of Cincinnati, and today I'm going to be talking about the paper Serious Bacterial Infections in Young Febrile Infants with a Positive Urinalysis. It's by Mahajan et al. in 2022 in Pediatrics. So this paper has been covered by a number of EM and pediatric blogs, including the Skeptic's Guide to EM, where the authors of the paper itself are interviewed, and by Journal Feed, which is how it came to my attention. All these blogs do a really great job, but I'll try to add some of my own commentary here just for a unique perspective. So this study sought to determine the prevalence of concomitant invasive bacterial illness in febrile infants less than or equal to 60 days old with a positive UA. The study was a secondary analysis of prospective data set collected from 26 PCAR and emergency departments from March 2011 to April 2019. It's a really huge data set for febrile infants in the U.S. covering a fairly long time period, with the caveat that this study was concluded prior to COVID-19, so keep that in mind. Fever was defined as anything greater than or equal to 38 degrees Celsius, either at the ED in another medical office or measured at home. They don't mention anything about kids who show up and the parents are just saying, like, he felt warm but don't have any measured temperature, which I do wonder about when I read the rest of this. The data collected in this study was a convenience sample, so really think of these as patients who probably presented during business hours when research staff was available. So if you're a nocturnist and you believe that your night population is going to be different from the day walkers, take note of that. There were 7,407 infants initially enrolled, and 7,180 of those were ultimately included, with the difference coming from those who didn't have a UA or CSF collected or those who were unable to be contacted by phone seven days later for follow-up. These infants were all less than or equal to 60 days old and quote-unquote non-critically ill, meaning that they were not on pressors or require intubation. They also excluded any infants with a history of prematurity less than 37 weeks if they had significant comorbid conditions or any of those who received antibiotics in the preceding 48 hours. These seem like reasonable exclusions to me. I think most of us in EM would probably consider the patients described by those exclusions as to not be your typical febrile infant, and this paper is really meant to deal with that group. I want to point out that it didn't exclude infants that, quote, appeared critically ill or only include, quote, well-appearing infants, as some similar prior studies have done, and it actually defined what critically ill meant in an objective way, like I mentioned before, being intubated or being on pressors. Something else that this study did, which I love that they did and they only mentioned in passing, is that they compared the characteristics and rates of invasive bacterial infection of the cohort of patients that were initially rolled but were excluded from the study to those of the group that was included in the study itself, and they found no big differences there. I think that's really important to make sure that we aren't missing uh, a more vulnerable subgroup that wouldn't have been enrolled. So like I mentioned before, the primary outcome of this study was to determine the prevalence of concomitant invasive bacterial illness in febrile infants less than 60 days old who had a positive UA. I'm a big fan of the use of the UA here because using the results of a urine culture in anything in EM is just silly. We're never going to have those without a time machine. It's always important to define what a positive UA actually is because this isn't always the same across the board and does differ from study to study. This one used a relatively low threshold for a positive UA, 
the urine had to have been collected via cath or suprapubic aspiration. A positive UA had any nitrites, any leucesterase, or greater than five whites per high power field. Another difference between this and some previous studies on the same topic is the term invasive bacterial illness. Keep in mind that some groups have included UTIs in the past and call it instead a serious bacterial illness, but this paper specifically defines their primary primary outcome of invasive bacterial illness as bacteremia or bacterial meningitis, remembering that this doesn't include any viral meningitis, specifically HSV. A side note here to mention that there are two fairly recently developed rules for evaluating the febrile infant in the ED, the PCARN and the AAP rules. The AAP rule specifically divides patients into 21 to 28 days and then into 29 to 60 days. This paper generally divided groups by 28 and less or 29 and more, but they also did a subgroup analysis on the infant's 22 to 28 days, which the Skeptics Guide podcast and website do a really good job of talking about if you're more interested in that. I'm only really going to say here that based on this paper, I'm not sure I would treat that subgroup as totally different from those less than 21 days, but it is worth a discussion and consideration on a case-by-case basis. So the results of this study... Of these 7,180 patients included, 1,090, which is 15.2%, had a positive UA. In patients with a positive UA, bacteremia was more common, 5.8% versus 1.1%. So if you aren't always getting a blood culture in an infant less than 60 days with a positive UA, you should probably start doing that, and you should really consider it even in those with a negative UA to cover that 1.1%. Of note, about half of the patients with a positive UA actually ended up having a true UTI as defined by their culture results, whereas only 0.8% of those with a negative UA had a true UTI. The most common causative pathogen in both groups with the UTI was E. coli. So I mentioned earlier that the risk of bacteremia was higher in infants with a positive UA, and I want to point out that while the most common causative pathogen in that group was E. coli, in infants with a negative UA who ended up having bacteremia, the most common causative pathogens were group B strep in 34% and staph aureus in 20%. Regardless, a dose of ceftriaxone should cover all of this. When it comes to the risk of bacterial meningitis, this was essentially the same in infants less than 28 days with or without a positive UA, 1 versus 1.3%. Now here's the kicker. Infants 29 to 60 days old with a positive UA had zero cases of bacterial meningitis. Out of the 697 patients, 0%. This is compared to those with a negative UA who had nine cases of bacterial meningitis. 0.2% of the 4,153, which is a small number, but still important to mention. Finally, of the 148 infants less than or equal to 60 days old with a positive UA who had PCARN lab markers drawn and met low-risk lab criteria, being an ANC less than 4,000 and ProCal less than 0.5 nanograms per mil, none of those had bacteremia or meningitis. Another thing that the authors did that I truly appreciated was not assuming that everyone has procalcitonin available in the ED. They looked at independent predictors of invasive bacterial illness in patients with a positive UA if you did or didn't have procalcitonin included, and they found that when the procal results are available, it and younger age are the only independent predictors of invasive bacterial illness among patients with UTI. So in other words, if your patient has a positive UA but also has a high procal, 
you should still think about invasive bacterial illness, just like is suggested by the PCARN and the AAP rules. However, if ProCal was not included as a predictor, they found that younger age, higher ANC, and higher temperature were independent predictors of invasive bacterial illness. So does this mean that you should actually care about the height of temperature? If the infant has a high ANC and is borderline on age, the answer might be yes. Remember that unlike the AAP rule, this study didn't include any CRP measurements. So in my final minutes, I want to talk some about other things the authors included as possible predictor variables in their multivariate models for the invasive bacterial illness. They talk a little bit about viral status, and this is really mostly in the supplemental data. So again, remember that this study was pre-COVID, but it was interesting that they included viral status of the patients. It doesn't specify what viral meant, but I'm going to assume that it's probably the flu with or without other respiratory viruses included on some kind of extensive, expensive panel. So 35% of the febrile infants had a viral test done, with 28% of those having positive results, and the positive results were more likely in the negative UA group, being 30% versus 17% in those with a positive UA. I would love for this study to be repeated during the COVID surge years and get some of that data. Hopefully someone's working on that now. The other thing they included was the Yale observation scale score. So this is like a kind of subjective, objective type measure of how well an infant looks. It looks at things like the quality of crying, how they react to their parents stimulating them, their color, their hydration, and then kind of like social overtures. The scale ranges from one being normal to five being severely impaired on each of the observed items. So the median score for the Yale observation score for all of the infants was six, and this didn't differ at all during positive and negative UA. So essentially it was not very useful. When it came to the even more objective, our quote-unquote gut instinct of whether or not an infant has invasive bacterial infection, the supplemental data is again revealing. So of all the patients looked at, ED docs at these specialized academic pediatric emergency departments felt like the majority of them either had only a minimal or slight, so less than a 5%, risk of having an invasive bacterial illness. That came out to be 78% of the patients. When they were asked if there was more than a 50% likelihood of these patients having invasive bacterial illness, they only felt like 1.4% of them did. Remember that in total, it was actually 2.4% of the patients who had either bacteremia or bacterial meningitis. These docs were also more likely to think that kids who had a positive UA looked sicker. And you can see this in the supplemental table eight. This just goes to show us that like we all knew already, kids are really good at looking okay when they aren't. So in summary, I think this was a really well done study. Um, you know, there are a few shortcomings. Um, you know, the whole convenience sampling, um, no mention about subjective fevers reported by parents. And then, you know, having been done before COVID, we all know that there's a different factor at play here now. But Overall, the analysis was really well done. There's a lot of useful information here. Um, and I love the conclusion that if you have a positive UA in a patient that is 28 to 60 days old, you don't necessarily need to do an LP.